Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Evan Myers. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Brad Littlejohn. Brad is a fellow in the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Evangelicals and Civic Life Program, where his work focuses on helping public leaders understand the intellectual and historical foundations of our current breakdown of public trust, social cohesion, and sound governance. He is also founder and president of the Davenant Institute, an organization dedicated to retrieving and renewing the Protestant theological and ethical tradition. Previously, he worked as a senior fellow of the Edmund Burke Foundation as lead author on a multi-year project entitled Foundations of Liberty, Rediscovering the Anglo-American Conservative Tradition. For a summer 2022 issue, Brad authored an essay highlighting the life and career of John Jay, founding father, diplomat, Supreme Court justice, one of the most important leaders of the early republic. The Revolutionary Era was a perilous time for the young American nation, when its prospects for success were far from certain. As we navigate another period of deep political divisions today in our fractured nation, Brad writes that few Americans have more to teach us on that front than John Jay, a man who modeled throughout his remarkable life and work, vocation of a conservative in a time of disruption. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. All right, Brad. So as we mentioned, the subject of today, of course, is John Jay, um, and maybe perhaps one of the more neglected founding fathers uh, when people think about, you know, the early presidents, whether it's Jefferson or Washington, Adams. But of course, as you know, Jay was, you know, one of early America's most impressive diplomats, um, author of some of the Federalist Papers, the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. So definitely a very influential figure in the founding era. Um, but what we wanted to start off the conversation with um, asking, you know, how did you develop an interest in writing about Jay? Um, and also, uh, you know, in the title, you call me a conservative revolutionary, which maybe is a bit of an oxymoron. So what if, just to start off with, um, why are you interested in Jay and why do you call him that in, in the title of the essay? Yeah, uh, good question. I'm trying to think where my interest in Jay uh, begins. I think for me as an Anglican Christian, uh, Jay is an interesting figure because he was one of the more uh, devout and um, just kind of very consistent and open about his his religion as part of his political life. Uh, And he was a devout Anglican throughout his life. And, you know, it quickly became apparent to me delving into the founding era as part of my work with the Edmund Burke Foundation, mm. that Jay was a figure of a tremendous significance, but uh, but largely neglected as part of the, the kind of narrative of the American founding, as you note. And I think part of that is, you know, because the thing is that, that Jay was deeply attentive to the conditions that are necessary for the maintenance of political order and national cohesion, which I think are extremely timely concerns now. And I think that Americans have been prone to sort of take some of those things for granted, right? We think of, I mean, we're fond of, particularly on the right these days, you know, um, quoting, you know, that government is best, which governs least, thinking of the task of government as purely the preservation of individual liberty. And so when we look at the founding era, what we tend to do is we celebrate the we celebrate the, the revolutionary era, casting off the tyranny of Great Britain, you know, declaring independence, establishing freedom. And of course, you know, um, you know Thomas Jefferson kind of takes front rank because of often the Declaration of Independence, sure. George Washington for his role in fighting for independence. 
And then we sort of skip forward to the Constitution, and it's like, okay, well, why do we need a Constitution? And then, you know, the, the, the narrative, strangely, you know, for a while kind of became the, the main purpose of the Constitution was to formalize and protect individual rights. Mm. Uh, and so there's this, this, this narrative of the Constitution that sort of fits with modern liberalism that says, you know, basically, uh, we want independence from Great Britain, but then there was a danger that we could oppress one another. And so we needed to defend individual rights. And so we have the Constitution. I think recent scholarship, I mean, Max Edling's book, uh, Revolution in Favor of Government, is kind of, I think, explodes that reading of the Constitution and shows that, no, it, the Constitution was to really a response to individual rights, some sort of, you know, running rampant, mm. uh, and actually the need, like, we've declared independence from Great Britain. Now we are declaring independence from one another, and we're, we're just sort of fracturing in as a society and have no no stability, no order. And the Constitution's attempt to create a, a stable form of government that, that brings together, that stops those centrifugal forces and starts bringing Americans together in one nation. I think mm-hmm. Jay, almost more than anyone else, uh, I mean, I think you, you have to put uh, Hamilton right up there with him, but Jay is really a key figure of that 1780s period that just kind of gets ignored in our in our national narrative. Like we got, we got independence and, you know, I guess we, we need the constitution and then, you know, happily ever after. Um, but what, you know, that we don't realize how, how tenuous the American experiment was during those years. Right. Like, um, you know, like it, we just think, Oh, of course, you know, you know, we got independence from Great Britain. That was the main thing. And, you know, after that, it was just the details and Jay and Hamilton and the other early Federalists realized that this whole thing could, you know, go south in a hurry, and it was going south in a hurry. Sure. And that the fate that prob- likely awaited the United States without a significant course change was that it would first fracture into a bunch of petty squabbling republics, and then the European powers would ally with different states. You know, some of the states had more of a natural attachment to France, some had a more natural attachment to Britain. Um, you know, Spain might be able to get some leverage over the Western territories. Mm. And then um, that basically the United States would be re-annexed by European powers and become part of their squabble. Um, and that, you know, to us, that just seems like, you know, sort of a ridiculous dystopian thing, but it was a very present reality and indeed probably the most likely scenario in the early 1780s. Yeah. And I think Jay, more than anyone else, prevented that from happening. Yeah. Well, I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into, you know, Jay's own identity and how he sort of thought of himself. You mentioned that he, he was a, a serious Anglican, but you, you also note three other cultural affinities that really shaped Jay as, as he grew into the figure that he'd become. You know, you say first and foremost, he was a New Yorker. Uh, he served as the state's first chief justice and, and its governor. And, and you, you say in the essay, for example, that wherever Jay traveled and whatever task he shouldered, his heart remained in New York. You also say he's an early American nationalist. You kind of just talked about that a little bit, about how he really valued American nationalism um, and, and not letting the country you know, divide and split up into a bunch of uh, fractured republics. And then finally you say, and, and I think this one might be the oddest one to hear for people, that he felt a keen sense of continuity with America's British colonial past, that even though he was an American nationalist, he treasured the British heritage in America and the legacy of laws and political institutions it had given to the young republic. And so I guess I'm kind of wondering how these loyalties shaped Jay's life and especially his work in politics. Um, and, and, and 
you know, there, there's in a certain sense, they are in tension with one another. And I'm sort of wondering how Jay worked that out, because I think that really is the kind of main subject of your essay is how, you know, an American nationalist who also loves Britain um, and, and the British heritage sort of makes his way in the world. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, Jay is a good a good model for American federalism at its best, which is a way of sort of nesting different identities within one another um, in these kind of concentric circles of loyalty as opposed to play as opposed to playing off local and regional attachments against national attachments. You know, Jay has these these spheres of loyalty, um, you know, to uh, I guess, you know, his, his locality in, in, in New York City or, or southeastern New York State to um, the state of New York as a whole, to the state of New York as part of this American nation and then the American nation as part of this transatlantic civilization that shares a common language, religion, legal tradition. And uh, and I think Jake, Jay recognizes that human beings need a, they need a, a local center of loyalty you know that you can't you don't want to be loyal to an abstraction and uh and there are significant regional differences and i think he he does in his in his early american nationalism he doesn't want to you know just dissolve america into one in undifferentiated mass he recognizes that there's going to be uh you know significant differences differences between the southern states and the northern states and uh and those are function of you know, the immigration patterns and, and dominant religions and, and geography and so on and so forth. So that, uh, so we, you know, we do need local centers of attachment to, to anchor us. And yet those, you know, we're not, those local centers of attachment find their meaning within larger holes, larger bonds of shared loyalty right. that for America are, you know, created in part by, I think this is, you know, the significant fact that, uh, part of what makes the United States viable as a nation is the is the experience of the Revolutionary War. That you know, that is to say, if Britain, you know, if if America had declared independence, you know, as thirteen states, and like sort of nominally, hey, we're we're all declaring independence as one nation, and then and Britain had just said, okay, you know, fine, sure, we'll let you go. Well, then actually, Britain would have had a much greater likelihood of reconquering America. I think in that case, because. Mm-hmm. Right. The states would have declared independence together and then immediately fragmented back into 13 independent units. Yeah. But it was the experience of having to fight together for the cause of independence and the fact that many of the leading men of each, in each state served in the Continental Army alongside one another from, and, and got to know people from other parts of the country whom they otherwise never would have met. That it created a sense of national feeling. Uh, and you know, this, is why, this is why Washington and Hamilton are the the, among the you know arch nationalists, because mm. as Washington is head of the Continental Army and Hamilton as his his right hand man, and they experience America as something greater than just the sum of its parts. So, so anyway, so Jay has that, but he also understands that he's very insistent that what, why was the revolution? What was America fighting for? He wasn't fighting for freedom in some abstract sense, as if freedom just Freedom and self-determination is just kind of a good in itself, but it was fighting to preserve the the constitutional order, the, the laws and liberties that it felt like it had enjoyed up until 1763. It it valued, Jay in particular, is very, is very insistent, like, we like 
we like British uh, institutions. We like British uh, laws and, and customs. Uh, and and that's, we, we wanted to keep them. And the problem was that Britain itself was integrating and trying to take away from us these things that we had seen as our, um, our heritage. Mm. So, so for him, at, even after the revolution, uh, the hope is that as much as possible, that inheritance of English religion, um, law and culture can be maintained. Yeah. And I think when readers check out your essay, Brad, one of the things they might find surprising at first is that Jay was initially against, you know, America declaring independence, independence from Britain. But I think you're, the end of your last answer there kind of leads into that of, well, he did feel a strong sense of continuity with English institutions and laws and rights. And, you know, you even note that in an address he wrote to the people of Britain, he wanted them to, uh, quote, permit us to be as free as yourselves, and we shall ever esteem a union with you to be our greatest glory and our greatest happiness. And then long after the revolution, I think you said like half a century later, um, that Jay was still adamant that Americans had not sought independence, but rather it had been forced upon them. Um, so talk a little bit more about um, why Jay at first was against American independence, but then changed his mind. Um, and that what, what that reveals about sort of um, some of his identities and sentiments. Yeah, well, um, I think, I mean, the, the first thing is, as I said, uh, independence is not... A, a good in itself. Um, it's, you know, there are, we can look around the world and see plenty of examples of countries that succeeded in gaining independence and have had really kind of miserable experiences since <laughs> since then. Yeah. Uh, that it's you know you can you can be in you can be dependent and functional or independent and dysfunctional and <laughs> you know and although we kind of it's something in it sort of stirs the whole kind of you know brave heart you know uh, mentality of you know, fighting for liberty just because yeah. uh, I think um, you know, the sober statesman realizes that uh, if it's a choice between, you know, functional and stable ordered liberty, uh, independence uh, in, 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 in space dependence upon another country, that might be better than, you know, independence and chaos. And so I think, you know, as Jay surveys the scene, it's not at all, there, there aren't that many examples to point to of uh, countries succeeding in fighting wars of independence and establishing very stable polities afterward. Right. So just as a realistic student of history, you're not all confident that America has the unity or resources or willpower to fight a successful war of independence. And even if, and if they do, he's not at all confident that they would hold together as a stable society afterward. And so, as is a prudential matter, he says, like, if, you know, if we can solve these grievances with Great Britain without resorting to independence, then that should be the goal. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, then that, that prudential calculus changes as he sees, on the one hand, uh, Britain increasingly opposed to any kind of compromise, and it, and it becomes clear that there is, there is going to be no return to the status quo of 1763. Uh, that if, you know, it's, there's no way of enjoying, enjoying the, the, the same liberty that, you know, that, that, uh, the British themselves enjoy. So the, um, the stakes are higher as the, as we go from 1774, 1775, 1776. And at the same time, he is impressed with the degree of resolution that he sees among his fellow Americans and, um, you know, by, it's interesting, really, by, um, I guess, in 1777, I think, when he writes his address to the um, address to the people of New York, 
And by that, or no, it's actually late 1776. Anyway, so he, he kind of goes from very pessimistic about American prospects to utterly confident that uh, America will prevail in the end and, and succeed in maintaining its, its independence. Brad, that, that reminds us, in our next question, we wanted to ask you about the rule of law. And you say that Americans today sometimes forget, you know, how fragile the early republic was. You brought that up earlier. And as you pointed out, there were bouts of domestic violence, Shays' Rebellion, uh, and the French Revolution, too, demonstrated that, again, freedom for freedom's sake didn't always really work out. Jay, though, remained convinced that, you know, American liberty was good, but that it depended not on abstract ideals or high-minded peons, but to the about the innate goodness of, of, of how good Americans are, brother on the rule of law. And, and, and you go on to say that, you know, you quote Jay saying when he was a Supreme Court justice that it cannot be too strongly impressed on the minds of all of us how greatly our individual prosperity depends on national prosperity and how greatly our national prosperity depends on a well-organized, vigorous government ruling by wise and equal laws faithfully executed. And today, you know, conservatives often, oftentimes kind of get cold feet when we talk about something like a, a, a government ruling, you know, vigorously or something like that. But how does Jay, as this sort of conservative figure at the American founding, we just talked about how he, he wants to protect sort of the British tradition. Um, how does he teach the American people and the art of self-government once they're moving away from Britain and, and establishing their own polity? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that Jay is particularly struck by, I think, I think looking at this from a kind of actually international relations standpoint can shed light on the kind of domestic order liberty. So he's the, the lead negotiator at the Treaty of Paris, right? And um, or he becomes the lead negotiator and, and he is instrumental in procuring a favorable peace for America there. And we can come back to that if you, you know, if you want to ask a later question about that. But crucially that, you know, a peace treaty, a successful peace treaty, relies on uh, all parties to actually keep their word, right? The Americans in a very tenuous position vis-a-vis Britain that's sort of jealous to regain its possessions and France is looking for any kind of uh, leverage over the American colonies that it can use uh, to improve its position vis-a-vis Britain. And so, you know, Jay comes home with this very favorable treaty. And then within almost no time, the Americans, just start disregarding their side of the treaty. Uh, the, the various American states are not interested in in keeping terms of the treaty. For instance, um, the, you know, the, there's the, 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 the they confiscated property of loyalists, and there was in terms of the treaty where you know so these the confiscations had to be repaid, and so on and so forth. And so, what Jay this, this is part of what leads Jay to say we we need a strong national government because. The national government recognizes it's in the best interest of America as a whole if we keep our engagements with foreign powers, whereas all these states can sort of focus on their own petty interests in a way that actually undermines American stability. What Jay observes here is this basic principle that to maintain your freedom, right, if America is actually going to maintain its freedom vis-a-vis Britain, it's going to have to restrain its appetites, its appetites for, you know, seizing seizing assets from British creditors, seizing lands from the Indians in the West. It's going to have to restrain its appetites and keep keep its engagements, keep its promises to foreign powers if it's going to maintain its freedom vis-a-vis foreign powers. And that's really the same, the same logic as at work in domestic affairs, right? An individual citizen, an individual citizen who 
seize freedom as the freedom to just uh, act on a whim, to to break his contracts, to um, you know just pursue his own private advantage over against his fellow citizens. That's quickly going to result in you know a breakdown of civil society. It's going it's not going to be it's not going to be good for society. It's not going to be good for that that individual, right? Nobody's nobody's going to want to ever enter into a contract with him. He's the kind of person who breaks his contracts. Mm-hmm. And so, if he actually wants to be have freedom to participate in the marketplace, then he has to exercise that freedom in restraint in um, being able to to keep his promises. So for Jay, you know, Jay really sees the function of law as in many ways, law is our collective promise making uh, as a society in which we say to one another, here are the things that we will not do. You know, we could seek our private advantage in any given moment by, um, you know, by stealing or cheating, or et cetera. But we are covenanting together that we are not going to do those things uh, for the sake of each of us actually experiencing more freedom over the long haul. Right. Yeah. So for Jay, law and liberty are not opposed to each other, right? right. Uh, law is, the, is the, the means by which we express and maintain our liberty. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he thinks that this, when he sees the French Revolution breaking out, he's very keen to impress on his fellow Americans, right, that do not succumb to the allure of this idea that liberty simply means the throwing off of all restraint, um, because that's going to end, that's going to end in, in the subjection to some new despot, right? I mean, he sees, he sees Napoleon coming before, you know, well before the fact. Yeah, Brad, to, to follow up on that, you talk a lot about how Jay's sort of view of foreign policy and his understanding of, you know, America's responsibilities in the world and how it had to live up to those influencing his domestic policy. I mean, I think people aren't aware of this, but Jay was arguably one of America's greatest diplomats ever. Um, at least that's the case you you seem to make in the, in the essay. You know, he brought home the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the Revolutionary War, which I believe you say John Adams uh, gave him credit for. The Jay Treaty, which is named after John Jay, obviously, he, he, he brought in 1794, which made sure that America would remain neutral um, while Britain and France uh, battled it out. And in one really memorable anecdote from the essay, you, you, you say that John Jay convinced Franklin to defy Congress's instructions and shut the French out of independence negotiations with the British. And, and that later historical research has now shown that Jay was in fact right not to trust the French, that their aim was to weaken America and to leave America dependent on French support. I, I wanted to ask broadly about the way that Jay's domestic views of kind of what America is and what it needed to be in the world and sort of what the early Republic required, how that influenced the way he thought about foreign policy. We just talked about it in the reverse, but how does Jay's sort of career as a diplomat, what does it reveal about his, his approach to the American nation um, and its relationship to, to the world? Yeah. So I think this is a really good question um, because I think what Jay really recognized and insisted upon was that it wasn't enough to just declare independence and nor was it enough to fight and gain independence. You had to actually maintain independence um, and and that required uh, a very, that required a different set of skills that Americans were not naturally good at. The, I mean, Americans had no experience of 
engaging in foreign affairs, obviously, because the, um, they, they weren't supposed to, right? They were, uh, <laughs> Parliament and the British government handled that set of things for them. And so there's this real naivete, I think, going into the negotiations at the end of the war that, you know, because the French helped us, uh, the French must share our ideals and our love of liberty. And, uh, and I mean, it's partly the fact that the Frenchmen that Americans had experience of were Frenchmen like the Marquis de Lafayette, who were these kind of young idealists who, you know, saw America's fight for freedom and sailed across to, to join in. And so Americans sort of naturally thought, oh, that's what all the French are like, right? Um, and they didn't realize that, no, um, for the most part, the French government was run by uh, career statesmen who practiced real politic and uh, understood that there were there were there were many ways to exercise influence and domination short of you know complete military and political control. Yeah. So just because America may have succeeded in throwing off the military and political dominion of Great Britain did not mean that it had yet truly gained independence. Independence meant that America had to be able to actually chart its own course among the family of nations, uh, and therefore to do that, it had to earn the right to be treated as an equal, right? The um, European powers, you know, just kind of looked out their noses at America, uh, you know, it was a colonial backwater, it was brand new, mm-hmm. uh, but not just that, it was a republic, and they tended to think, I mean, they, there were, of course, some European republics, but uh, in general, the crowned heads of Europe tended to think that if you didn't have a crowned head, you know, you weren't really a nation in the proper sense, right? And so what, you know, what Jay realizes and has to work fairly hard to convince his countrymen is that if you want to be taken seriously by other nations, you can't just assert it. You have to earn it. And the only way you can earn it is by being simultaneously kind of bullheadedly assertive about American national interests. Uh, you can't just be a kind of doe-eyed idealist and, and sort of assume that other nations will just, you know, instinctively understand what's fair as far as like where the, you know, one of the key, key questions, the Treaty of Paris is where the, where the Western boundary of the United States should be. And the European powers are very keen to prevent America from having access to the Mississippi River. And Jay recognizes that for the future growth of America, it's absolutely essential that it do have that access. And the only way that that's going to be achieved is by, you know, um, being being kind of a pushy jerk about it. Um, <laughs> Negotiations just like constantly insisting on it. And it's just funny reading his, his correspondence, some of his exchanges with the Spanish ambassador in particular, and how he just kind of makes himself odious by just refusing to bend on this. But at the same time, um, so you, you, you have to be very assertive uh, in, in, in protecting national interests, but you have to be scrupulously honorable in your relations with other nations. Um, so other countries have to know that you're going to fight hard, but you're going to fight fair. Uh, and if you, if, you make a, if you make a promise, you're going to keep a promise. And if, uh, if the European uh, nations realized that America was willing to fight hard for its interests, but that once America made treaty promises, America understood itself as honor-bound to keep them, then America would actually be treated as an equal. Uh, and if it's treated as an equal, then it will actually have independence in a meaningful sense, the ability to um, sort of set, chart its own course as a nation. So I think, you know, it's really Jay's 
achievement, not just at the Treaty of Paris, but in his uh, time at the Spanish court before that, and of course, and then his time at the uh, English court negotiating the Jay Treaty the next decade. It's not just uh, what he negotiates in terms of the paper documents that get signed. It's um, the impression that he makes on his counterparts mm. that um, America means business, but America also needs to keep its word. Yeah. Setting an important example. All right, Bob, we wanted to conclude with, I, th- I thought were a couple of fascinating anecdotes about Jay's life that you included in your essay. Uh, first, you note that when he first ran for governor of New York, he lost, but there were some widespread accusations of voter fraud. I think you say there are brazen uh, uh, instances of voter fraud. Uh, and though, even though his friends and wife urged him to fight back, um, he responded with what's perhaps my favorite quote in the essay. Um, he says, quote, having nothing to reproach myself with in relation to this event shall neither discompose my temper nor postpone my sleep. A few years more will put us all in the dust and it will then be of more importance for me to have governed myself than to have governed the state. And then the second um, anecdote you mentioned is that after he'd been elected as governor later, he reconciled his Federalist allies to the victory of Thomas Jefferson on the 1800 election, which of course was a very bitter dispute between Jefferson and the Federalist. But, you know, he could have, as governor, uh, opted to ha- appoint a different slate of electors, Federalist electors that could have denied Jefferson the presidency in New York, but he chose not to do that. He, didn't, he thought that was a dishonorable thing to do, even if it was technically legal. You know, so these couple of examples uh, show that, as you write in the essay, that he, uh, Jay practiced what he preached uh, and then he embodied his conservatism in his personal life. You know, so reflecting on these two instances from Jay's life, it can, can seem pretty resonant today. I mean, obviously, if you watch the January 6th hearings recently on TV, um, we're still dealing with election disputes and deep political divisions. So, you know, kind of reflecting on Jay's life and then and the, what it can teach us today. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? How, how can looking at Jay's life and career help us kind of remain calm in the, the political storms of today? Yeah. Well, I think there's two dimensions, perhaps, to his, um, you know, why is he able to take this posture and say, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to fight these election results. And so, I mean, I think the first is personal and the second is, in fact, based in his political sense. So I'll you know, mention the first. So, um, I mean, that, that quote you read, oh, <laughs> I love that quote, too. And I, what I love even more is that the next sentence after that quote, you know, the he said, a few years more will put us all in the dust, and it will then be of more importance to me to have governed myself than to have governed the state. The weather is very warm, right? So he has <laughs> he just like immediately then goes on to just like just talking about the weather and like talking about, you know, what you know, what yeah. happened yesterday. So I mean he's writing this letter to his wife and it's really striking because she she you don't have her end of it. But it's mm-hmm. obvious like you can almost like imagine her tone, like he's like she's obviously very agitated. Um, very, you know, very upset that he's being cheated out of the collection, imploring him to do something about it. And he's like, you know, calm down. I'm not going to worry about it. Now let's talk about the weather. Right. <laughs> um, and so he really is. Um, and it was, you know, remarked, remarked upon throughout his career. People were just kind of taken aback by how self-possessed he, he, he often seemed. Right. And so he really did seek to cultivate a sense that, as important as politics was, uh, it was not the most important. It was, it was a means to an end. It's not the be all and end all of human life. And that he knew, uh, you know, he's self-aware enough to know that if he allows himself, you know, in that, in that fight in your governorship, I think part of what he's concerned with is the political implications of fighting it out. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but part is also, I think it's even if I succeeded in this, if I, if I, if I just, you know, 
went to the mattresses over this and succeeded in winning, what might that do to my soul? What kind of person would I be if I put my political success sort of above above all other considerations? Right. And and he you know he doesn't want to become that person, and so he throughout his life I think does a good job of keeping keeping his political task in perspective. I think as a tough one to essay, I mean his faith I think is a crucial part of that. He's constantly mm-hmm. he has trust in God's providence. He has trust that America is in the right in its struggle, um, and he has and therefore he believes that he's an instrument of the divine purpose. Uh, he should, you know, he should work hard to do his part to ensure America's success. But he's not an indispensable instrument, right? That uh, if he, you know, if he dies or if he's not elected governor or whatever, um, God will, God will work it out one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a key part of it. The, the other part, I think, is political recognition that you know a nation has to be bound together with bonds of mutual loyalty. And that means, you know, I mean, as, as any, as any parent knows, um, you know, parenting children, you know, you have to tell your kids, uh, like, okay, maybe they did hit you. Maybe they did steal your, you know, whatever, maybe they did cheat in the game. Uh, and you know, and, and if I can, if I can verify those accusations, I will try to, you know, um, discipline accordingly, right. but you need to value your relationship with your brother Above that, like if, if, if you're winning the game um, is more important than your relationship with your brother, then you're, you're in a lot of trouble, right? Mm. So holding together as a community means being willing to means being willing to lose, um, even being willing to lose if the other side is fighting dirty. Um, if you recognize that, look, I'm I'm going to be stuck living with this person, so um, sometimes I need to let it pass, right? Mm. And I think that's you know, I think he realizes he might be able to mobilize his friends and succeed in getting the governor election overturned. Um, but at the cost of just cementing the person, there's already pretty intense personal hostility between the, the factions of the Clintonites and the Federalists, and he doesn't want to make that worse, right? And so he's like, basically, like, I'm more, I'll lose, you know, lose the battle, win the war, right? I'm more, and, and indeed, he is, you know, he's elected to the New York governorship later on in the decade and serves with great influence and popularity. And then, you know, in the election of Jefferson in 1800, it's a little different there because in that case, he would be kind of the one being asked to, to fight dirty, right? By like technically, legally, he could have appointed a different slate of electors, but it would have been perceived in all sides as dishonorable. And he recognizes, I mean, it, it's just not, it's not worth it in that case. Like if, if Adams succeeded in winning the election of 1800 because the whole nation perceived the Federalists to have fought dirty, then he's going to have no mandate. Mm-hmm. Uh, like at best, he's going to have no, like there might be actual open civil strife. I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. fraught situation. If there's not open civil strife, then, you know, Adams is going to govern for four years with absolutely no mandate and with a strong opposition in the Congress. And then in 1804 election, the Federalists are just going to be, you know, politically buried forever, which I mean, they end up being politically buried forever. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. so it may not be that one uh, panned out, but I think, you know, he recognizes that um, even from a strictly political standpoint, there's such thing as a pyrrhic victory, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why that's why we have a sense of not merely what is lawful, but what is honorable. And there may be things that are technically lawful, but are dishonorable to do. And the person who succeeds at the cost of doing what is dishonorable, again, damages their own soul and in the long run, damages the 
political fiber of the community that they're hoping to lead. All right, Bat. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So we appreciate you uh, coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been great. If you'd like to read Brad's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can listen to more episodes of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.